Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with the first chapter of Russia in Revolution, a book about the history of Russia and digging into the circumstances of the time and what led up to the revolution. So let's continue getting some context on Russian society pre-revolution. Agriculture and Peasantry Late Imperial Russia was an overwhelmingly agrarian society, in which three-quarters of the population sustained themselves through farming. See figure 1.2, footnote 40. There was huge environmental variation across the empire, crucially between the fertile Black Earth Zone, which encompassed Ukraine, the central agricultural region, the provinces of Kursk, Orel, Tula, Ryazan, Tambov, and Voronezh, the Middle Volga, Southwest Urals, and Southwestern Siberia, and the less fertile non-Black Earth Zone, which included the Central Industrial Region and the forested provinces of the North and West. Grain was the predominant agricultural crop, accounting for more than 90% of total sown area as late as 1913. Agriculture was still technically backward, The three-field system and strip farming were widespread. There was little mechanization. The wooden plows and handheld sickle were still the norm, and little use of fertilizers. Grain yields were well below those of other countries. An unusually fierce winter, and a couple of bad harvests in a row, could spell disaster, as happened in 1891-92, when a terrible famine saw up to 400,000 people in the Volga and central agricultural provinces starve to death. Though the government was also at fault for not halting grain exports soon enough. Footnote 41. In the second half of the 19th century, the population of the empire grew faster than in the preceding two and a half centuries, rising from 74 million to 167.5 million, between 1860 and 1914. Footnote 42. This put considerable pressure on the land, causing rents to rise. If the average amount of arable land was 13 hectares per household in 1877, it had fallen to 10 hectares by 1905. Footnote 43. This was still a large area compared with the average size of farms in Western Europe. But because yields were so much lower, the average peasant, especially in the central Black Earth provinces and the western provinces, lived a precarious existence. One telling index of the backwardness of European Russia, i.e. the empire west of the Ural Mountains, is that in 1905 fewer than half of babies, particularly boys, reached the age of five. Endemic diseases, such as measles and diphtheria, overwhelmed the countryside, where dirt, overcrowding, poor ventilation, and, of course, miserable provision of public health prevailed. Footnote 44. That said, a direct cause of the high level of infant mortality, 273 per thousand births in 1914, is that mothers working in the fields left their babies in the care of the elderly or young children, who fed them with chewed bread covered by a rag, which quickly putrefied in hot weather. Among Tatar women, who did no fieldwork, infant mortality was much lower. Footnote 45. 
village society was highly conservative in its values and practices, these having evolved over the centuries as means to ensure as much collective control over the vagaries of climate and the arbitrariness of the authorities as possible. The community took precedence over the individual, and the village presented a common front against the outside, resenting the intervention of outsiders such as tax collectors or military recruiters. Footnote 46. The commune was the institution that most embodied the collectivism of rural society. At the turn of the 20th century, about three quarters of peasant land, including nearly half of all arable land, was subject to a unique form of management, in which the heads of households periodically repartitioned the arable land belonging to the commune among its constituent households. In addition, this village assembly decided when households should plough, sow, reap, or make hay. Such collective control of farming was designed to minimize risk in an uncertain environment, and to ensure that the poor did not become a drain on the community's resources. The village assembly was also responsible for ensuring that households paid their taxes and for law and order. In 1905, in 46 provinces of European Russia, 8.68 million households held land that was formerly subject to the communal repartition, while 2.3 held land in hereditary tenure, that is, passed from father to son. The total number of peasant households in European Russia was around 12 million. In the Baltic, the commune was completely absent, and in western provinces and Ukraine, hereditary tenure was predominant. Footnote 47. The commune was seen by contemporaries as discouraging entrepreneurship and innovation, since there was little incentive to improve one's farm if there was a likelihood it would be subject to repartition at some point in the future. Although in practice, by 1917, about two-fifths of communes in European Russia, including some in the overcrowded central agricultural provinces, had not undergone a repartition since the 1880s. Footnote 48. Peasant society was patriarchal in that men held power over women and the elder generation held power over the younger generation. Only men had rights of property in the household and its land, and the assets of the household were divided equally between sons on the death of the head of the household. Even as the patriarchal order privileged males by granting them access to land and the labor of women, it subordinated sons to fathers almost as thoroughly as it subordinated women to men. Footnote 49. A young wife who moved into her husband's family was subordinate to her mother-in-law, although her status would rise once she bore children, and after her husband became a head of household, she might wield considerable power over her own daughters-in-law. Footnote 50. There was, however, increasing reluctance on the part of young couples to live under the roof of the patriarch and his wife, and a trend for them to separate from the parental household and set up their own farms. This was reflected in a decline in average household size. In 1897, the average family comprised 5.8 people. Although there was variation in household size, especially between the Black Earth and non-Black Earth zone. Footnote 51. Down to 1917, the law dictated that a wife owed complete obedience to her husband, and compelled her to live with him, 
to take his name and to assume his social estate. It was her duty to take care of the household and to help her husband on the farm. In return, her husband was required to live with her in harmony, to respect and protect her, forgive her insufficiencies and ease her infirmities. A wife was unable to take a job, get an education, receive a passport for work or residence, or execute a bill of exchange without her husband's consent. In 1914, limited reforms permitted her to separate from her husband and obtain her own passport. Footnote 52. Customary law protected the inalienability of a woman's personal property, which included, in addition to her dowry, revenues she might earn from selling vegetables, chickens, or woven and knitted items. And if her husband left her, a woman could expect some backing from the township court, although the courts were not sympathetic to complaints about physical abuse by menfolk. Footnote 53. Within the household, women enjoyed considerable latitude in running domestic affairs, in addition to childcare, cooking, cleaning, washing, and making and repairing clothes, they spun yarn and wove cloth, looked after livestock, cultivated flax, and assisted with the harvest. By dint of their involvement in arranging marriages, presiding at childbirth and christenings, and generally upholding community standards and norms, married women enjoyed a certain informal authority in village life. Footnote 54. In regions where men migrated for wage work, women took on heavy farming tasks that had once been considered men's work, such as ploughing, sowing, haymaking, carting fuel, and feeding cattle. Footnote 55. If agriculture remained backward and predominantly oriented towards subsistence, commercial farming nevertheless made rather rapid strides. By 1914, Russia was the world's leading exporter of grain, and in the last decade of the old regime, grain production grew faster than population. Most commercial grain production was done by big estates, with wage labor, but by the turn of the century, peasants were selling about a quarter of their harvest, if only because they had to pay their taxes. Footnote 56. The development of non-grain arable crops and of livestock was much more weakly developed, but in right bank Ukraine, the provinces on the west bank of the Dnieper River, i.e. the right bank as seen from Moscow, industrial sugar beet production grew substantially, and in the Baltic provinces, in the northwest, and the central industrial region, the provinces of Moscow, Vladimir, Yaroslavl, Kostroma, Tula, Kaluga, and Ryazan, peasants began to specialize in market gardening, commercial dairy farming for growing urban markets, and industrial crops, such as flax. Footnote 57. In Siberia, which had never experienced landlordism and serfdom to any great extent, there was even a slow adoption of binders and threshing and mowing machines. In addition, where they had access to markets, such as on the steppes of southern Ukraine or southeastern Russia, where there was access to railways, the Volga River or the Black Sea, peasants did take advantage of new opportunities to farm more commercially. In the heartlands of European Russia, however, commercial agriculture remained weakly developed and fully-fledged capitalism, 
as measured by capital investment, technical innovation, and use of hired labor, was rare. Contemporaries seeing endemic poverty in the countryside, noting that the size of the average farm was shrinking in size, and believing that the burden of redemption payments continued to be heavy. These had been imposed in 1861 to remunerate the landowners for the land they assigned to their former serfs. We're convinced that the standard of living of the rural population was deteriorating. Certainly, peasant lives remained poor and insecure, but it is likely that the overall standard of living was slowly rising, for per capita growth of agricultural output exceeded the growth in population, and the amount of grain and other foodstuffs retained by the peasant household also increased. Footnote 58. The increasing height of army conscripts suggests that nutrition was improving. Footnote 59. There is also some evidence that the burden of taxation, rents, and interest rates was falling in real terms to an average of around one-fifth of household income, although this is not uncontentious. Footnote 60. Finally, deposits in rural saving banks were healthy. This slow improvement reflected the fact that peasants were finding new sources of income in trade and handicrafts, such as brewing, making butter, spinning yarn, or tanning leather, and in wage work in agriculture, domestic service, forestry, transportation, and factory industry, usually by leaving the village on a seasonal basis. The picture of slow improvement of peasant life, however, varied by region. Almost one-third of peasants in European Russia lived in the central Black Earth and Volga provinces, and there the amount of grain produced per head actually declined from the 1880s. Moreover, livestock farming was in long-term decline, and the wages of rural laborers were also falling. Footnote 61. Even so, the evidence for a slow improvement in the standard of living of the rural population looks strong. The most far-reaching of the reforms instituted in the wake of the 1905 revolution, certainly the one that affected most people, was the edict of Prime Minister Peter Stolypin in November 1906, followed by the laws of June 1910 and May 1911, which made it possible for peasants to consolidate the strips of land they farmed within the commune and set up separate enclosed farms. Stolypin intended the reform as a wager on the strong, an attempt to promote a lair of vigorous yeoman farmers who would spearhead the modernization of farming. The hope was that they would become a pillar of conservative peasant support for the autocracy after the agrarian upheaval of 1905. Between 1906 and 1915, about 3 million households were granted title to the land they held within the commune or were affected by a commune decision to participate in a group land settlement, or opted to separate from the commune. A further 3 million petitioned to be allowed to consolidate their land holdings, and either had their applications turned down, or were awaiting a decision when war broke out. Footnote 62. In the central Black Earth region, the central industrial region, and the north, there was very little take-up the greatest concentrations of enclosed farms being in the northwest and west and in the south and southeast. Footnote 63. 
In general, poorer families did not have the wherewithal to separate from the commune, though not all those who petitioned to separate were wealthy. Indeed, many wealthier households were averse to taking risks and chose to stay within the commune. It has been estimated that 15.9% of communal land, not including Cossack land, had been privatized by 1914, and that between 27% and 33% of all households held their land in some form of hereditary tenure. The divergence between these two figures being due to the fact that only arable land could be enclosed, with the commune keeping control of pasture, forest, wasteland, ponds, cattle drives, roads, and so on. Footnote 64. It is difficult to come to a definitive judgment about the success of the Stolypin reforms, since the period of implementation was cut short by the war, and because the focus of the reform gradually shifted from enclosure towards land improvement. There is reason to think that had war not intervened, privatization would have gathered pace, but the enormous upheaval brought to the rural economy by war and revolution served to reinforce the commune as an institution that minimized collective risk. Some contemporaries were convinced that as capitalism developed in the countryside, the peasants were stratifying along class lines. Social inequality was a fact of village life. At the turn of the century, statistical surveys suggest that 17% to 18% of households, perhaps as many as 25% by 1908, could be classified as well-to-do, in that they had sufficient land, some livestock and machinery, and money in a savings bank while at the other end of the scale, 11% of the peasantry were without any arable land or livestock. Footnote 65. Those the peasants called kulaks, fists, were not usually defined by the amount of land they farmed, but by the fact that they lent money, rented out equipment or draft animals, or owned shops and mills. Some historians argue that such statistical surveys freeze in time what was in fact a very dynamic process, in which the fortunes of individual households rose and fell over time. They contend that it was labour, not land, that was crucial in determining the wealth of a household, with wealthier households simply being those that had plenty of working members. Once adult sons split to form their own households, however, the wealth of the parental household declined. According to this view, any trend towards differentiation was offset by households' division, and by periodic redistribution of land by the commune. Footnote 66. Another problem in determining whether there was a trend towards greater social differentiation is that it is hard to know how to measure it. It may be calculated according to the amount of land a household sowed, the number of horses or livestock it owned, whether it used higher labour or not, though most of this was seasonal or day labour, and whether it owned agricultural machinery. Moreover, social differentiation was less if measured in per capita terms than if measured by household. In European Russia, the proportion of households without horses rose from 61.9% in 1888 to 1891, to 68% in 1899 to 1900, to 74% in 1912. This suggests that class divisions were deepening in the countryside, 
until one remembers that households with larger numbers of horses were concentrated in less commercially developed regions. Footnote 67. If differentiation was indeed increasing, it was probably less connected to the development of commercial farming than to off-farm earnings. A study of eight provinces in the central industrial region shows that differentiation in the rural population was less in counties where the population was still largely involved in farming and great in areas where cash crop production, handicrafts, and trade were developed, where wage labor was increasing, and where literacy levels were high. Footnote 68. If there was slow improvement in the condition of the peasantry, why then was there so much unrest? To understand this, one needs to go back to 1861, when serfs were financially emancipated. Peasants felt that they had been cheated by the land settlement. Not only were they required to pay for the land they received over a period of 49 years, in so-called redemption payments, but they also received less land than they had farmed as serfs. Moreover, their former masters kept roughly one-sixth of the area that had been under serf cultivation, often the land that was of best quality and most conveniently situated. In addition, the redemption payments on the land they received were set in excess of its market value. In 1917, there were still grandparents who had been born serfs and the memory of serfdom galvanized much of the militancy of 1905 and 1917. Even more fundamental was that, according to the moral economy of the Russian peasantry, only those who worked the land, who made it productive, had a right to possess it. In one of Tolstoy's fables, peasants decide whether or not to take in strangers according to the state of their hands. If their palms are calloused, they will take them in. As one peasant explained, quote, The land we share is our mother. She feeds us. She gives us shelter. She makes us happy and lovingly warms us. And now people are talking about selling her. And truly, in our corrupt, venal age, land is put on the market for appraisal and so-called sale. The principal error lies in the crude and monstrous assertion that the land which God gave to all people so that they could feed themselves, could be anyone's private property. Land is the common and equal legacy of all people, and so cannot be the object of private ownership. End quote. Footnote 69. Notwithstanding the fact that the nobility got a good deal with the Emancipation Settlement of 1861, their fortunes went into steep decline over the next 50 years. By 1917, there were about 100,000 landowner families, of whom about 61,000 belonged to the noble estate. Footnote 70. These landowners had lost roughly half the land they owned at the time of emancipation, although they still owned much more than half of all privately owned land, even if much of it was mortgaged to the noble's land bank. Footnote 71. Gentry estates varied greatly in size. There were some vast domains, but over 60,000 families had fewer than 145 hectares, 100 deciatina in the measure used at the time. Moreover, notwithstanding the transformation of certain large landowners into capitalist farmers, the average noble estate was as undercapitalized as the average peasant farm. Significantly, by 1903, Peasants were already leasing almost half the land belonging to the landowning class 
and some had taken out loans from the Peasant Land Bank to buy noble land. Footnote 72. We have seen that the liberal elements of the gentry became very active in the Zemstvos through the 1890s and into 1905, but the increasing urban lifestyle of a large proportion and their declining interest in estate management undermined their standing in rural society. In any case, for the peasant, the nobleman, whether rich or poor, conservative or liberal, symbolized them, the privileged society from which they felt entirely excluded. The Tsarist state began to invest in primary education in the late 19th century, recognizing the need for literate, trained, and well-disciplined workers, soldiers, and sailors. Enrollment in rural schools increased fourfold between 1885 and 1914, while the number of teachers from peasant families grew from 7,369 to 44,607 between 1880 and 1911. Footnote 73. The census of 1897 found that 21.1% of the population of European Russia was literate, but the gender gap was significant with only 13.1% of women being able to read and write, compared with 29.3% of men. Urban literacy stood at 45.3%, while rural literacy stood at 17.4%, though both rose steadily in the years up to 1914. Footnote 74. In that year, only one-fifth of children of school age were actually in school. Footnote 75. Doubtless this was because many peasants considered that schooling was not needed beyond the point when sons became functionally literate. As far as daughters were concerned, a widespread attitude was articulated by a villager in 1893. Quote, If you send her to school, she costs money. If you keep her at home, she makes money. End quote. Footnote 76. Nevertheless, by 1911, girls comprised just under a third of primary school pupils, and the spread of schooling meant that by 1920, 42% of men and 25.5% of women were literate. Footnote 77. Evaluations of the record of the Tsarist government in the sphere of schooling tend to be fairly positive. Footnote 78. Peasant communities paid for nearly one-third of teachers' salaries and assumed much of the responsibility for village schools. Footnote 79. But the proportion of the regular state budget spent on education rose from 2.69% in 1881 to 7.21% in 1914, a figure that includes spending by the Ministry of Education, the Zemstvos, and the municipalities. Footnote 80. Another figure suggests a less positive picture. After 1907, the proportion of the Ministry of Education's spending devoted to primary education rose from 20% to 40% but it still meant that the lion's share went to secondary and higher education. Footnote 81. The government recognized the need to devote more resources to primary education in order to improve technical skills and work habits of the working population. Yet it shuddered at the thought that schools might encourage free thinking. It had some reason to do so, for the revolution witnessed school strikes and student demonstrations on a mass scale. At least 50 secondary school students were killed and 262 wounded, and some 20,000 teachers were fired as order was restored. Footnote 82. 
Consequently, the regime monitored popular education, clamping down on anything that smacked of sedition. A decree on primary education of 1911 explained, quote, Primary schools have the aim of giving students a religious and moral education, developing in them a love of Russia, communicating to them basic knowledge, and enabling their mental development. End quote. Footnote 83. And that's going to do it for this week. Next time we will be continuing with this chapter and more of the groundwork. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.